You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Trevin Sims. I'm a partner in Lozano Smith's Los Angeles office and chair of our public safety practice group. I'm joined today with Joshua Whitesides, and I'll let Josh introduce himself. Hello. Um, So I deal primarily with students and labor and employment issues, focusing in on helping school administrators keep schools safe. And today we're going to talk a little bit about school safety, which is obviously on all of our minds as um, school officials and those of us who provide legal services to schools. And as we get schools back in session and students and teachers back in classrooms, um, I think all school officials are looking at, okay, how can we continue to best ensure um, safe schools, particularly in light of the ongoing incidents of uh, unfortunate mass school violence. So today we're gonna talk about um, two new important documents that have come out from the federal government that can provide uh, significant assistance to schools and schools officials in their efforts to provide safety and particular in the area of threat assessment. That's right, Trevin. And, you know, these resources that came out over the summer, but they didn't actually reference each other. It was kind of weird, Um, but they kind of talked about the same thing. So we had one from the FBI, which focused on pre-attack behavior of school shooters. And then the Secret Service um, had a document uh, a month later that talked about uh, helpful advice about using student threat assessments and how to conduct that, how to, what are the best practices for that. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And, and I want to talk about the FBI re- report first. Now, the FBI report, it's part two of this federal initiative to analyze, identify, assess, and manage school shooting situations and how to manage those individuals who might be in a pathway to deadly violence. And I wanted to kind of point out a couple of key findings from this report as they relate to schools. The FBI looked at 63 active shooters pre-attack behavior, so behavior that was happening before the attack to see if there were any sort of indicators that um, would portend or or would uh, allow an administrator to identify uh, that a potential school shooting or a serious school violent uh, incident was about to occur. And and one notable thing to start off the the conversation is that there was no uniform demographic um, amongst the shooters that was identified, or there was no specific uh, characteristic of the students who engaged in this behavior that you could kind of look at and see. And I think that kind of goes against some of the prevailing national discussion about this. Um, Trevor, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I think that's right. And and in the report, and even in the, um, the Secret Service report we'll talk about, they emphasize that, you know, you can't, there's no particular um, profile of a student who would engage in this sort of behavior. And so it, it's important not to create specific profiles of students, but 
um, to walk through a, a standardized, robust um, uh, assessment model that we'll talk about that, that focuses on the right things. And some of the concerning behaviors, this pre-attack concerning behaviors that the FBI report really highlighted were sort of strange interpersonal interactions between uh, the student who ultimately commits the, the very violent act um, with other students, kind of a recklessness about their actions and behavior. Uh, also, they noticed that um, this, these students were often engaged in violent media usage or had very impulsive or very violent firearm behavior that they might have exhibited to other staff or students prior to this incident. And kind of this physical aggression is another hallmark, another concerning behavior that was noticed. And one of the, one of the issues is that for, for a lot of times when these school shootings happen, most people or most administrators that have been involved in these sorts of incidents, you know, it's no surprise when a school shooting happens and you look at who is conduct who is actually committing the offense, because everyone then suddenly starts analyzing and remembering these concerning behaviors that popped up over the last one to two years. And so it's not really, you know, no one is sitting there being like, I never thought this individual would do this heinous act. Um, most of them can point to four or five sort of concerning behaviors that were spotted before the incident occurred. And so that kind of makes this a, a scary proposition because, you know, you're only looking at a handful of incidents over the last two years that we probably feel that administrators probably feel about several of their students on campus. And it's just a matter of whether or not they have the, the means to do it or the desire to do it. Trevin, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, again, there's no particular profile, but and and hindsight is a very strange uh, 2020. But you know that's that's how we can analyze these things and try and come up with some predictive models and predictive behaviors to prevent them in the future. And you know, the FBI Secret Service has identified certain common types of behaviors and, and things that have been demonstrated. But again, they caution against using those as, as the only factors that we look at or attempting to create a particular racial or social economic or other um, profile of students. Because when you, when you look at this, um, you know, there, there is no particular group that these individuals um, come from. And it's more so looking at, okay, their environment. What is their environment like? What sort of stresses do they have? Um, you know, what behaviors are they demonstrating versus what do they look like per se? And the FBI did notice that um, these students who kind of engaged in these acts were more likely to show these concerning behaviors to other student peers and teachers, more so than their own family members at, at home. And so it's really important for at the school setting to be able to identify this. But at the same time, like you said, not to profile um, based on a demographic or protected characteristic. So 
the FBI also recommended in response to this, you know, what is the practical steps that districts can do to try to manage this situation or at least identify and assess whether or not this student is a potential threat for more serious school violence? And so they recommended that schools look at threat assessment strategies, which kind of segues to the Secret Service Guide. Trevin, do you want to talk about that guide? Yeah, uh, thank you, Josh. And that's exactly right. Um, The FBI report really focuses more on trying to identify those pre-attack behaviors and generally talks about implementing that into your threat assessment program. What the Secret Service Guide does, which was prepared by uh, their National Threat Assessment Center, is it provides really a model for a threat assessment process and system uh, directed specifically at school districts. And it's it's part of um, a federal initiative that's gone on for some time is continuing to provide resources and training to local law enforcement and school officials in um, having robust threat assessment um, systems. And what the Secret Service or INTAC guide says is it recommends a multiple-step comprehensive prevention plan. And it has about eight steps. First, they talk about you need to form a multidisciplinary threat assessment team. And I think by now, most school officials and districts know that they need a threat assessment team. But this this notion of it being multidisciplinary, being across you know, different um, roles within the school community is really key and important from teachers, counselors, coaches, resource officers, and others, um, because all those people have different skill sets. They have different experience and exposures with students. They all bring different data to the team different insights to the team and it's how you collectively are able to analyze okay is is this student in crisis or potentially in crisis Um, and you you need those multiple threads together to really do this in a robust way the second thing was defining um, prohibited and concerning behaviors and this is one of the areas where i think the two reports although separate, um, tie together and complement one another. So by defining prohibited and concerning behaviors, it's exactly what the FBI was talking about in part, which is, you know, what are the things that this student is doing or engaging in that might be raising concerns about either some uh, potential of an immediate threat or if it continues and escalates a future threat? And It's important to note that the FBI document focuses on active shooters. Obviously, when we're talking about threat assessment, we have students who may not necessarily be, you know, in the active shooter um, realm who might pose a threat, who are in crisis that, you know, we we want to identify early and try and, and put in some some strategies to to help put that student on a proper path or uh, eliminate the threat. Then it talks about establishing a central reporting system. 
And here, again, this is part of that notion of a multidisciplinary team. And one of the things that we've seen in all the studies that have been done is um, usually before an incident occurred, someone had information or someone knew something that if it had gotten to the right individual, perhaps, not certainly, but perhaps um, the threat could have been averted, um, intervening steps could have been taken, or you know, this, the student could have been identified earlier. And one of the major problems is that information doesn't get to the right place, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's the appropriate official in the school district. So they recommend having a, a clear reporting line so that that data and that, that information doesn't get lost and gets to the right individual. So Trevin, do you think at a school, do you think that would mean that if it's a central reporting mechanism that that data would be stored at the district office? Or do you think that would just be at the school site and it would kind of be with the student's CUME file and kind of pass along to, from school site to school site as they graduate? You know, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. And I, I think it's going to differ. And there has to be flexibility here from, for example, the um, one school site district in a rural community um, versus a large urban um, unified district. Uh, it's going to depend upon what personnel, one, they have available. Um, some school districts and schools have individuals who are dedicated to this sole function and the data getting to or information getting to that individual, they are in a place where they can tie it together, you know, within the school or from school to school within the district. So I, I think it, it's, it's going to vary and it's just something that schools and school districts have to look at, okay, you know, what is our structure? What is our, what are available resources in terms of personnel? And what's the best way to make sure um, information doesn't fall through the cracks and that we pull all this information together to give us a complete picture? And at least so far, California law allows that flexibility. And, we can, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, really the, the law is kind of allows for these differences, these variations between rural and urban school districts to kind of deal with these situations as they might come up and establish their own threat assessment procedure, right? Yeah, and, that, and that's absolutely right, Josh. I mean, all of this is still has to be done within the context in compliance with specific California law. When the federal agencies issue this guidance, you know, this is their recommendation of best practice, but we still have to make sure we're complying with FERPA, for example, and sharing student information, whether internally within the district or outside with law enforcement. We have certain limitations in California on our ability to search um, social media, for example, but that is one key component of the best practice recommendations um, from these guides. So it's all with that backdrop still in mind. The next thing they talk about is determining the threshold for law enforcement intervention. And again, that notion of what's the, what's the proper balance and partnership between schools and law enforcement? 
We still want our schools to be inviting. We want them to focus on education. We want kids to feel comfortable there. We don't want them to feel like it's sort of a penal institution. Um, but at the same time, we have to have clear guidelines on, okay, when do we see something that's appropriate to refer to law enforcement? And the, the intag guide doesn't give specifics on, okay, this behavior, or that behavior, but it says you need to evaluate that and, and be clear about it as part of your threat assessment model. Uh, the next step is developing um, or establishing assessment procedures. And again, the notion here is you want these procedures to be standardized, you want them to be clear and transparent, and you want them to be fair. And so by, by having clear written um, policies and practices about how we're gonna go about this, that's how we ensure that the process is robust, the process is fair, and the process is applied consistently. Next, it's developing risk management options. And there it's pretty much, you've done your assessment, you've identified an at-risk student, now what do you do? Um, it's not enough to simply say, okay, this student is in crisis or potentially a threat. It's what do we do now? And the goal obviously is to put procedures and steps in place that we can allow that we can minimize the threat, bring this student back. So whether it's counseling or whatever it may be. Uh, the next step is creating and promoting a safe school climate. And again, this is continuation of what has been a theme in schools for many years now. Um, we know the impact of bullying and that feeling bullied and isolated and picked on is one of the themes that we've seen in, in prior incidents for school shootings. So creating an environment where students are not bullied, they feel like they belong, they feel like they have um, someone they can go to and speak to, not only the students who are at risk, but other students who, if they see an incident, they feel like this is a culture and a place where I can uh, report that to appropriate officials. Uh, and that's what creating that environment is. And that, that's an ongoing process. And, and that's kind of encapsulated within the LCAP as well, that all, you know, all school districts are required to prepare and put together. And school climate is one of those issues, those hot button topics that has to be addressed. And that's kind of where you get the the money to do a lot of these school safety things is by putting it into the LCAP and apportioning those funds in that way. Um, and this has really been a, a, a big feature that the CDE has focused in on, the, the state legislature has. Tom Swanson actually just released a, a Healthy Kids survey earlier uh, last month um, saying that three in 10 high schoolers still suffer from chronic sadness and one sixth of high schoolers have contemplated suicide. Um, linking that to only six and 10 high school students actually feel safe at their school, which, which are pretty concerning statistics um, that, that still exists. I mean, uh, Torlakson was saying that the sadness and the suicide contemplation rates are getting better, but they're still mind boggling to think about. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 
almost half your population at the high school not feeling safe and a third of them feeling like they might um, have some serious sadness issues and a sixth wanting to commit suicide. I mean, th those are all very concerning to me. Right, exactly. And that that's why this component of this threat assessment model is is so important. And it, it goes well beyond threat assessment, um, you know, in ensuring and creating that that safe school climate, particularly now in the age of social media. Uh, and then the, the final step for the INTAC uh, guide is providing training to all stakeholders. Um, you know, it's important that, yeah, we have procedures in place and our, our assessment team might have, have training and reviewed guides, but we also need every member of our staff to understand their role. Because again, this is all information and data driven for the most part and support and climate driven. So teachers, custodians, counselors, coaches, they all need to know the importance. They all need to know their role. If they see something, who to say something to, um, how to tell to their role in creating, maintaining that safe climate, um, the, the training piece is essential. And so, I mean, that this guide is really uh, an important document for anyone who has a role or a leadership role in a school safety planning and threat assessment, and um, they're encouraged to review that document. Um, in addition to these guides, um, there's some legislation, I think, that now has been passed and sitting on the governor's desk, perhaps, that are related to both the threat assessment and response to incidents of violence and ensuring school school campuses are safe. And I think Josh is gonna talk a little bit about those as well. Yeah, thanks Trevin. So yeah, so Assembly Bill 1747, which is like Trevin said, right on the governor's desk right now at the time of this podcast recording, we expect it to be signed, uh, but it's it would require schools to perform annual active shooter drills uh, and require the, the tactical response portion of safety plans to include specific procedures for gun incidents at schools and school-related activities. So that will become a requirement um, if the governor signs this bill. Additionally, um, Assembly Bill 1747 would mandate charter schools to develop comprehensive school safety plans if they don't have them already. And Still within this bill, um, even though it's kind of having these very small sort of requirements um, being implemented, the overall broad perspective for the school safety plan remains flexible, um, which is good news for California schools um, across the state to be kind of to develop procedures and practices that are going to be coordinated with law enforcement, with the fire department, with their first responder entities that they have available to them. Um, there are some school districts that are, you know, well away from a lot of those entities. And so they have to develop tactical response plans that staff can implement while waiting for police to arrive compared to other schools who might have an SRO or a police force actually on the campus itself. That's right. Yeah. And like Josh mentioned, your school safety planning, this, all this is should be considered 
as additional reference material as schools and districts look at updating and submitting their modified safety plans. You know, there's new requirements for, for those as well. And, you know, the, while threat assessment is not specifically mentioned in the school safety planning statutes, uh, I don't know how we can say that having a robust threat assessment process and procedure is not essential to um, a comprehensive school safety plan. Right. And there's two other bills that I just want to highlight. Um, Assembly Bill 3205 requires that new school modernization projects include locks on doors to classrooms. Um, I think there is a there's an understandable need for when there's an active shooter situation taking place or a serious school violent threat um, occurring on campus that this option is available to protect the students within the classroom. Right. And then finally, there's a Senate Bill 972 also on the governor's desk. And this just kind of reiterates kind of the school climate issues and the, the concerns that any sort of concerning behavior might be rooted in this sadness or, de- or depression. But student identification cards for 7th through 12th grade, um, all of the, their student ID cards must have a telephone number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and allows for districts to also include the crisis text line for students to text for help. And a, and a local suicide prevention hotline number. So I think this one is a slam dunk, um, good idea. Um, it just might mean that districts need to be cognizant of this requirement now and update the ID cards for their students. Yeah, I mean, it's, an, an, again, another unfortunate sign of our times, but, you know, a way to try and ensure that in moments of crisis, kids know where to go. And, you know, we assume they're going to have their ID card on them wherever they are. And if they're sitting there alone, um, you know, they they have a resource there available to them. So it's just another way to provide support and reach out to kids. Well, Trevin, I think this was a good conversation. And I know that uh, a lot of our administrators might want to look at these resources or might have questions. And we'll provide links to these resources in the podcast notes for this podcast. uh, So you can access them there. They're also available on our website. And then of course, if anyone has any questions about their school safety plan, about establishing threat assessment procedures, uh, they can feel free to contact you or me or any of the attorneys at our Lozano Smith offices. Any final thoughts, Trevin? No, I think you wrapped it up well. And again, I really encourage school officials to, to review both documents and consider how they fit into uh, your threat assessment and school planning um, initiatives. Thanks, Trevor. Thank you, Josh. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any one of our eight offices throughout California. For details on how to get a hold of us, visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com slash podcast.